Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Energy Flux podcast. I'm delighted you're here. And uh, just a quick reminder, if you are not signed up for email updates from the Energy Flux newsletter, then you can go and fix that easily. Head on over to www.energyflux.news and uh, punch in your email address. Um, so it's just me today. I've had a string of interesting guests recently and I figured it was time for a quick monologue. Now, I did send out a note to premium subscribers that I was going to be talking about natural gas and risk premiums and uh, things that are happening in, in the gas market as a result of the Russia-Ukraine conflict uh, or the crisis. Um, but I, uh, when I started to look into that, then I discovered something interesting, and that's that Russian coal exports are actually quite a big deal uh, in Europe. And that this kind of speaks to a wider problem that the energy industry is facing and certainly is an impediment to the energy transition. And uh, that took me down a bit of a rabbit hole, which I'm going to take you down to. Uh, coal is an underreported segment of the energy industry, and uh, it, it does get coverage, but I, probably not quite enough. And uh, as I was looking into this situation with Russia and Ukraine and Europe and energy exports, uh, I figured, well, if, if I'm not paying enough attention, if I'm not in, sufficiently aware of this, then maybe some of my listeners aren't either. So I'll, I'll get on to that. I'll get on to Russia and Ukraine but um, I thought, as I, as I started looking at this, I started taking a kind of a step back and a step back to get the, the full picture of uh, what's going on with the, 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 kind of the world's use and consumption of coal. And uh, it really struck me that the prevailing narrative that coal is dead or coal is dying is highly misleading. Uh, and, and really, some of the changes, uh, or lack of change maybe, in global coal use really speaks to some underlying trends in the market, which, which we should be aware of. And like I said, I got to do more digging. It became more interesting. And I decided oh, I'm going to do an entire show about coal, uh, really from quite a high-level perspective, just to kind of capture the, the macro situation uh, and, and, and then tease out some of the, the lessons around or learning perhaps around what what we we can learn from it with regards to the the wider transition to to cleaner energy sources so looking at coal the the headline statistics speak to a, a world that's hungry for energy and the the three facts that summarize the world's energy predicament are are the following so coal is the world's largest source of electricity generation it's the world's second largest source of primary energy, and it's the largest source of energy-related CO2 emissions. So there, in a nutshell, are the, the kind of challenges relating to coal and the energy transition more broadly. You know, the, the, the fuel which the world needs the most today uh, for power and its second largest source of primary energy is the, the most polluting, which is probably not new to a lot of people, but when you just stand back and think about it, it's like, wow, how, how, do, we, how do we get around that? Um, so I've been looking at the IEA's coal, uh, latest annual coal report, which came out in December. 
And uh, so uh, the report says, based on current trends, global coal demand is set to rise to more than 8 billion, 8 billion tonnes in 2022. That would be the highest level ever seen. And it's going to remain there until through to 2024. And that got some traction when that report came out. And it's worth kind of just repeating it because, um, you, know, you know, like I said, the narrative is that coal is dead or dying, um, and it absolutely isn't. It's barely beginning to plateau. Uh, overall coal demand worldwide went up 6% in 2021, taking it back to levels seen in 2013-2014. And in power generation, coal-fired power burn hit an all-time high in 2021. Um, so coal-fired coal power rose by 9% last year to 10,350 terawatt hours. That's a new all-time high um, because, you know, gas became more expensive last year as I've uh, spoken about at length on this podcast. And so obviously that led to alternatives being sought and the most readily available and uh, competitive in a lot of electricity markets was coal. So yeah, coal burn rose by an astonishing 9% last year. Uh, and, And what we're seeing generally is that the the uh, electricity demand is outpacing the su- the supply of low carbon power there's a there's a gap and that gap is going to remain for at least until sort of mid decade and how we're bridging that gap a mixture of coal and gas and the balance between the two is extremely price sensitive so um last year was a case in point you know when gas became more expensive then the uh, the go to option was uh, was coal because that 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 gap needs to be bridged. Um, there's only so much demand destruction that can take place in something as crucial as electricity. And uh, you, you know, you've got to keep the lights on. There was some demand destruction in Europe, but, um, uh, you, you know, like the, you know, the power grid still needs to, to, to maintain up and running. And a lot of people just won't turn off. They, they, need, they need electricity, particularly if they use it for heating. Uh, so coal's share of the global power mix last year was 36%. That's actually five percentage points below its 2007 peak. Um, so we've got growth in absolute burn, uh, but actually declining market share. And, and those, two, those two kind of, uh, not opposite points, but countervailing points perhaps, they, 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 they speak to what I said at the beginning, which is like, this is a world hungry for energy. Um, it, you know, um, coal is, uh, we're burning more of it than ever, but it still kind of represents uh, a diminishing share of a much 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 bigger pie um with every year that goes on um uh yeah you could even say the world is kind of desperate for energy because you know you wouldn't burn coal if you didn't want to or have to it's obviously the dirtiest power source and yeah obviously that speaks to a lack of alternatives um and and those that that kind of lack of alternatives is very stark when you look at how that uh how coal consumption changes across geographies uh, so th- we're seeing declines in advanced economies, um, like in ter- declines in terms of like coal consumption in advanced economies being offset by growth in emerging or developing economies. So China, India, they have a lot of industry. Uh, coal consumption is growing very strongly. In fact, breaking new records in those countries. And and like I say, that's offsetting declines in like the US and Europe, um, where you know coal, and that's kind of where the narrative comes from that the coal is is dead or dying because in 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 europe and the us it, it is in secular decline um, um but that that only tells part of the story and china is 
definitely worth focusing on because China's overall use of coal is more than half of the global total. And, and that's really despite China's best efforts to diversify. So China ex has expanded its, all its alternatives, um, hydro, wind, solar, nuclear, more than any other country in, in recent years. And it even had a massive coal to gas switching program, which at points has been really too aggressive because there was a winter, I think, in 2019, 2020, if my memory serves, when thousands of people across north China were really left without adequate heating uh, because they, the, the provincial authorities were implementing this edict from Beijing to rip out coal furnaces and uh, replace them with gas. And there was this kind of ultimatum that you, you, know, you must stop burning, burning coal. But the, the new gas boilers didn't arrive in time or the supply lines simply weren't developed in time. And uh, so people were just cut off. And I remember writing about it in my previous job about um, just the, the hardship suffered by thousands of families and um, schools and businesses. And there are even kind of tweets about showing the thermometer at sort of three degrees centigrade inside schools and all the children huddled trying to keep warm during their lessons. Um, so, yeah, like I say, the, the coal to gas switching program in China has been too aggressive at times. And again, that shows like the, you know, the, the, the reliance on coal and, and the kind of lack of alternatives that, that, that keep it in place. But China's coal dependence is uh, it, it's a big problem for Beijing uh, and the whole country because, uh, well, for lots of reasons, air pollution being one of them. Um, the, uh, the the government has has tried to uh, cut back on on uh, the air pollution that's being generated by its uh, aluminium and steel smelting industry, uh, which is obviously uh, the, the biggest in the world too, and it relies massively on coal. So occasionally, periodically, there are constraints to, to outputs from, from those smelters. Um, and, and there's an irony in that because, you know, when you constrain the production of metals like aluminium and steel, then, you know, you're constraining the output of metals that the energy transition needs to do things like um, produce rolled steel for wind turbine towers and aluminium, aluminium frames for solar panels, etc. Um, you know, the world needs these metals too. And uh, there's a, a, a major steel-making hub called Tangshan in China. And it curbed output last week for the, the Olympics, the Winter Olympics, which are starting shortly in China. Uh, and the location for that is, is not, not that far uh, from, from Tangshan. Uh, and uh, having clear skies is, is important for, for Beijing, uh, particularly when the world's media is kind of focused on, on the country and and, uh, you know, having big kind of horrible beige yellow clouds of pollution hanging over the Olympics site is, uh, is not ideal. Um, and, and also, I guess, you know, that might be a bit too cynical because, you know, clearly people suffer year round, not just when the Olympics are on. And uh, uh, air pollution is a major problem for, for health for the people in China. Particulate levels, the particulate emissions that are generated by coal in the capital in Beijing, they're seven times higher than World Health Organization guidelines. And like I say, that's an ongoing health risk for residents. And, and you know, Beijing's been trying to, to crack down on this because, uh, and in fact, only uh, last week, I think, uh, the, the country's courts jailed, they jailed 47 steel company officials who were faking air pollution data. Uh, these, these companies, instead of shutting down production, chose to falsify 
information about how much emissions their factories were actually producing uh, in order to not throttle back output. And they were caught, apparently. Uh, and that really speaks to Beijing's intensifying crackdown of uh, firms that are flouting environmental rules. Uh, there were four companies, um, according to press reports in Tangshang, who, the, uh, which were dealt sentences ranging from six to 18 months in prison. Uh, an in interesting indicator of what's going on in the coal markets is the iron ore market too. Um, the iron ore price, uh, it's, there's an inverse correlation with energy commodities because smelting is energy intensive. Um, and it can be adjusted according to kind of macro market conditions. So when you have expensive energy, then you uh, tend to have lower smelter throughput because you know, energy is a, is a big cost input for those smelters. So you know, things go expensive, they dial down output until perhaps things come down a bit. And of course, that happened last year. We saw uh, very tight gas markets, prices soaring and people competing for LNG cargoes between Asia and Europe. And that drove the price up and up and up. Bit of a bidding war. And the the, the Chinese smelters, they they saw their costs increasing and a lot of them cut back output. And in fact, um, that, that crashed the, the iron ore price. So iron ore, uh, the, the price that iron ore was fetching on global markets from like Australia, Brazil, India, Russia, that, that came really kind of falling off a cliff. And it was interesting to watch that coming down as energy prices globally were, were rising to these really quite unprecedented extremes that we saw last year. Now, the emissions question is really complicated and quite uh, not very encouraging, I'd say, uh, because on the one hand, the, the momentum behind net zero has grown. Uh, and, but the era of declining emissions is moving further away. That's a quote from the IEA's coal report. Uh, and, and, and you think about those two things, and it's just this, it speaks to this credibility gap that we see too often in the kind of energy and climate debates, whereas there's all this kind of uh, willingness and intention to decarbonize, but actually the reality of when that might happen is sort of diminishing before our very eyes. Uh, uh, you know, there, we saw more commitments made to phase out coal at COP26. There was the coal to clean transition statement uh, in, signed by various countries in, in Glasgow. Uh, but, you, you know, like I said, the, the numbers speak for themselves. I, I don't think that's going to stop coal burn from reaching and staying at record levels until the middle of this decade. And that's really driven by China and India because they burn about two thirds of the global total and they urgently need cheaper and cleaner alternatives at scale, and, and they need it now or yesterday. Uh, and, and the fact that they're still burning so much coal, really, I think we can kind of learn from that, that, you know, the, the, that context makes you wonder about this question of peak oil demand, and particularly gas as well, because we hear that spoken about a lot, about you know, oil demand over the kind of longer-term plateauing and then diminishing... Uh, and, the, and there's even talk about, you know, gas demand in parts of the world going down as well. And you think, well, if we're still burning so much coal, how much credence can we give to, to those projections? It seems um, it might be wishful thinking. It might be that you have to think wishfully for, to, to make the wishes come true. It's, uh, you can look at it different ways.
but it, it does show that you know if we're still so much coal then then you know what how certain can you be that we're going to stop burning other other fossil fuels as well uh, and and that kind of reminds us again of why expensive gas is such a problem because you know when when the price goes up it prices itself out of the market and, and coal is always there as this kind of cheap option to uh, to turn to for for power markets to rely on it and and, and coal is the cornerstone of the power mix in China, in India, in, in Southeast Asia. These countries are trying to diversify, but the demand is rising for all forms of energy that they'll take, they take what there is, what, what they can, and, and often the most immediate and cheapest solution to meet their kind of rising demand, their, their aspirational, perhaps middle classes who want to have Western type lifestyles is to burn more coal, to keep their industry running and, uh, hopefully, to see some kind of economic benefits across the, the whole country. And uh, if they were to not burn coal, they would be foregoing those economic benefits. That seems to be the calculus that's going in, in, in just too many developing countries. Um, and Asian governments, they, they know that their demand can't be met by low-carbon sources alone, uh, let alone zero-carbon sources alone. And, and that's that's why that's why so much coal is is being burnt. And uh, but at the same time, they are drawing up big ambitions for cleaner power sources, particularly. And and it's worth dwelling just for a moment on the nuclear ambition of uh, the kind of uh, the general Asian region and 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 China in particular. Again, its its nuclear pipeline is is absolutely massive. It's there was an interesting piece on Energy Monitor this week, last week I think. Uh, about China's nuclear pipeline being as big as the rest of the world's combined. So China's planning 150 new reactors at a cost of $440 billion. Uh, and that's more than the rest of the world has built over the last 35 years. Those 150 reactors will have uh, an aggregate install capacity of 246 gigawatts, which is more than the entire electricity generation capacity of Germany which is 225 gigawatts, and it's really close to the 289 gigawatts of new nuclear capacity that the rest of the world has in the pipeline. So China is, in theory, going big on nuclear, um, but these will take time to build. And until then, what are the options facing China, facing other, other Asian governments? Um, really, price is everything, because that's going to determine the short-term dispatch decisions in power markets that's going to determine uh, how much industrial throughput their metallurgical and other sectors uh, manage to achieve um, and it's uh, it, it's not something that, that these governments can sort of turn their back on these are kind of hard economic realities hard choices and and you know the, the decision to to keep on uh, consuming is 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 really rooted in in that that trade-off, and there is there are geopolitical considerations around this, uh, and this brings me back to the original source of inspiration for this podcast, which was Russia and geopolitics. So, as I mentioned, you know risk risk premiums around the possibility of a cutoff in Russian energy exports is really roiling energy markets, which are already very febrile and tight and volatile because. Uh, you know, we saw the last year the, the massive recovery in in global economic demand, uh, economic activity, which drove demand for all energy sources. On top of that, now we have the situation between Russia and Ukraine, and 
<clears throat> that added a big risk premium to, to natural gas prices uh, on European hubs uh, at the start of this month, just after the new year, all driven by fears of, of this, this potential cutoff, um, which may or may not happen if Russia does or doesn't increase its, its sort of military activities around the Donbass region in the east of Ukraine. So we're seeing the discussion of sanctions against Russia, should it do, do that or, or cross a certain red line uh, in that region. Uh, and the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline is once again in the crosshairs. That's the new Baltic subsea pipeline that runs between Russia and Germany. And it's just the, the latest chapter, really, um, of that, that particular soap opera. Uh, and, and, yeah, like the US and Europe saying, well, uh, well, the US kind of cajoling European governments, particularly Germany, into saying, you know, if, if there was an incursion or a further incursion into Ukrainian territory, um, then uh, we, we want a, a commitment that, that Nord Stream 2 would never begin operations, uh, which seems like a kind of difficult commitment to make because... It might it might hold true in the moment, but the fact remains that the pipeline has been built and it's sitting there and it's packed with gas. And how you know how do you stop it from ever coming online? I don't know if you can, um, but it's 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 at the very least a, a, another delaying tactic to uh, to stop that that project from coming online. Um, and yeah, e EU dependence on Russian gas is a major factor in this latest Ukraine crisis. And like I said, I was going to focus on that in this issue, but, but I got diverted when um, I read a really interesting article in Argos Media about just how important uh, other Russian energy exports are. Um, and uh, one of those exports is Russian oil, which uh, ironically, and this really doesn't get reported very much at all, but Russian oil, uh, exports of Russian oil into the United States are at decade-long highs. The, um, the U.S. imported uh, nearly 200 million barrels of Russian oil in 2020. And these are levels that we haven't seen since 2011. Uh, and that's equivalent to about 7% of total U.S. petroleum imports. So it's not insignificant, I'd say. And any move to sanction Russian oil exports would have an impact on the, the supply-demand balance in the US and in many other parts of the world as well. And, and I haven't seen any politician talking about that, not, not in the kind of mainstream press that, that I've been monitoring. And, and it's ironic because I remember when, when Russia first started exporting liquefied natural gas, and this was going back maybe four years, five years, um, and, and shortly after those exports began, then we started to see reloads happening where exports from the Arctic would reload in a European terminal. Often it's in Montoir in France or Hammerfest in Norway. And they would get redistributed around the world according to spot market conditions. And, you know, you would see every now and then uh, an LNG vessel from, well, containing Russian gas uh, arriving in Boston at the, uh, the LNG terminal they have that serves a lot of the gas demand in New England, particularly in winter. And, and the world's media just goes kind of apoplectic over this. Uh, every time some Russian LNG rocks up in the US, it's like, oh, you know, we can't be buying Russian gas, it's the enemy. It's, you know, it kind of plays to a lot of old Cold War tropes that really get to kind of too much airtime at the moment, I'd say. Um, 
but but no one says anything about the fact that the US is importing nearly 200 million barrels of oil every year, it seems now, uh, from, from Russia. Um, so, so again, it's, it's, it's kind of this, this weird double standards thing that's, um, it's just a function of sort of media attention and, and it just doesn't seem to have kind of caught the imagination of enough journalists maybe. But um, um, certainly learning about it caught my imagination. I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. And, and there's a similar situation with Russian coal in Europe. And, and this is the genesis of the podcast. So um, Russian coal meets two-thirds of the supply of coal going into Germany, Belgium and the Netherlands. And Germany is the most reliant and exposed to, to Russian coal because, um, as we all know, Germany has a, a huge reliance on, on uh, coal-fired power generation. It has about 17.4 gigawatts of hard coal capacity, which, yes, it's going to close. Um, in theory, most of it, or maybe all of it, this decade. Um, but it's still using it quite a lot. <laughs> and uh, particularly now, because they've just closed 50% um, of their remaining nuclear Fire, uh, nuclear power generation capacity and the rest of it will close this year which will leave Germany reliant on a mixture of coal, gas and renewables uh, and then coal will in theory phase down and it'll be replaced by gas and renewables. But looking at the kind of more immediate term setup, so, so yeah, Germany and of course many other parts of Europe are, are, are burning lots of Russian coal uh, and the, uh, there's this discussion around the potential to, to to sanction Russian coal exports because, uh, you know, that's that's kind of an easy uh, option, if you like, for, for US Congress. That's something that perhaps both sides of the political divide can get behind, <laughs> partly because I suppose uh, the US doesn't really import much coal from Russia, even though it is importing lots of oil. Um, but it'd be very hard for European governments to reciprocate and to, 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 to offer a united front against the export of Russian coal. Because um, <laughs> the, not only are the stocks of coal that are kept, kept in Amsterdam, Rotterdam and Antwerp at multi-year lows, uh, and that's as a result of gas being expensive and people burning more, more coal uh, for, for power generation across Europe, over uh, last autumn and, and over the winter. Uh, we, we also saw, of course, a, a ban on exports of coal from Indonesia, and that tightened the fundamental coal market balance early, uh, early in this year. Uh, and, and also other Atlantic Basin coal suppliers are facing their own constraints. Uh, so Colombia, the US and South Africa uh, are not at able to export coal at full capacity and those constraints are not expected to, to ease very soon. <laughs> but the, the fact that really caught me out was that some European coal-fired generation plants are set up to run only on Russian coal. <laughs> and I, I, was, I was taken aback by that. I thought, wow, you know, how I, I didn't even know that that was possible. Perhaps that's uh, a bit of a... <laughs> uh, reflects my own ignorance of these matters, but I, I didn't know that. And uh, you, you think that, well, you, it's just a coal-fired power plant, you can put any old coal in it. But no, these, um, there's a certain grade of coal, uh, has certain uh, characteristics, technical characteristics, and um, they, they, won't, they can't easily be, be shunted onto a different, different kind of supply of coal. Um, 
so yeah if uh if there is a uh a, a, hopefully not but heaven forbid that if there is a a, a proper russian in, military incursion into east eastern U, uh, ukraine then then you wonder uh, really um how how powerful or how resolute the european commission and european union member states can really be against russian energy exports um, and you know, they can't even necessarily or easily target the the dirtiest, most polluting source of energy that, that Russia is exporting, and that's coal. Amazingly, um, the, the the discussion is all about gas, about Russian gas, and about Nord Stream two and LNG, and and that's all very relevant, highly relevant. And I was actually going to talk about that in this podcast about um, you know, gas market tightness. Um, and the, the kind of risk premiums and that, how that's sending a message to, uh, to, to gas buyers around the world of the, the value of committing to long-term take-or-pay agreements. They're, they're called sales and purchase agreements in the world of LNG. And if you commit to those over sort of 10 years, then you get guaranteed supply. You pay a premium over the prevailing spot price at many times of the year. But then when things like this happen and, and supplies tighten, then you're, you're sitting pretty because you've got your, your guaranteed price of LNG coming in. Um, and 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 that's that could still happen. Um, you might well see a kind of buying spree of LNG happening on the back of this kind of prolonged period of market tightness in gas and um, the, the 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 fight for cargoes for liquefied natural gas, which is becoming almost a kind of annual winter phenomenon. Uh, so I'm just going to wrap up and then then I'll see if there are any calls. Uh, so I think the conclusion from this ramble is that coal is a very sticky energy source. King Cole is stuck to his throne, and if we can't dethrone him, then what chance do we have of dethroning oil and gas, um, certainly in the sort of medium term? And uh, I'm reminded of a quote from, I think it's Daniel Jurgen, but I might be wrong, that the energy transition is more like an energy addition. And this goes back to what I was saying about how coal burn is increasing on an absolute basis but it's um it's it's its share of the energy pie is declining even though we're burning more of the stuff um and and that's because um you know renewable uh additions capacity additions are only um sort of adding to the kind of world's existing energy mix they're not replacing any of the incumbent energy sources that we rely on and, and those which are of course driving climate change so more renewables are not even keeping pace with demand growth, let alone replacing the dirtiest sources. And, and really, that's why you know, we're still leaning on coal. Um, coal demand is not easily replaced, particularly in industry or metals, uh, and, uh, but also in power, the power sector, as I mentioned, with these European power plant configurations that can only run on Russian coal. Um, and uh, security of supply concerns, they rise in tandem with prices. So energy security becomes a national security issue when there are shortages. Uh, and uh, so for producer, coal producers and coal exporters, then domestic market always takes primacy. And we saw that in Indonesia, which uh, that, that ban um, is being, it's going to be relaxed soon or it has been relaxed. Uh, but on the condition that there will be tighter rules for meeting domestic supply commitments from producers and exporters before they're allowed to then export to other countries like China. And for coal importing regions, then coal is cheap, it's easy to store, and it's a great fallback option in case gas is unavailable or, you know, if there's a prolonged drought and your grid relies on hydro, 
like we see from kind of Simon countries like Brazil, then um, coal is uh, is a kind of go-to power source to keep the, the grid ticking over. And uh, uh, so to, to replace coal, you know, gas and other cleaner alternatives, they must compete on price. Uh, and that's why this this gas crisis that we saw kind of building up since last summer has just been so, so awful for the climate because it's driven so much more coal burn up the chute and all those emissions up into the atmosphere. And it was really the worst thing at, at the worst time. But it does, it, it's very clear, the message. It's, it's just like, you know, gas or any other alternative, it's got to compete on price with coal. Um, that's got to be the, the that's, that's, that's where the threshold is for, uh, for kind of widespread adoption in countries that really need it, um, like across Asia and parts of Africa. And um, still in Europe, of course. So the world needs cleaner, more secure energy. Um, in the absence of cleaner, then more secure will do. Uh, cleaner is a nice to have, um, and, until it isn't, of course. Um, you know, air pollution and climate change are real issues. Um, but the trouble is that they aren't as immediate as people going cold in winter or not having any power supply for, for weeks on end. Uh, and so when it comes to those really hard decisions, then, you know, coal is, is going to get some play. Uh, that's probably enough. I think I've made my point. <laughs> um, uh, I'll just sign off by saying uh, enjoy the Winter Olympics on the telly if you're into that when it starts. And uh, if the skies are blue in the backdrop, then just remember why and think about what it took for China to achieve that. And let's see how long those guys stay blue for. Uh, like I said, this is a, an interactive podcast, so feel free to, to dial in, um, ask any questions, or just have your say about what I've been, what I've been going on about for the last 40 minutes or so. Um, and we have a caller. Hi, is that is Giuseppe? Are you there? Yeah, I was just thinking about what you said about worst case scenario, what happens if um, um, things go bad with Russia and what would happen to the supply of gas and, and, and coal to Europe. But someone the other day said something in, in an interview um, in a TV uh, show saying that during the Cold War, um, gas was still flowing in Europe. So I was thinking, I was wondering what, what's your take on that? Yeah, so I, my personal opinion, and you know, I, I might well be wrong, but I hope not, is that I, I think that talks of Russian energy supplies being cut off is is a bit overblown. Um, we we've only seen kind of very isolated examples of that happening in history. So there was an issue over Russian gas flows into Ukraine one winter, when there was a very specific dispute over over gas supplies between Russia and Ukraine. Um, but I, I think there's just there's too much at stake. And Russia really knows that it, it you know, it, it, its biggest customer is Europe, uh, by far, it's, it's a codependency. And if, if Russia stops supplying energy to its biggest consumer, then that's only going to worsen relations at a time when potentially if and when all this kind of blows over, there is the possibility of more medium long-term deals being struck because this gas shock has been a massive wake-up call for, for European governments. And I think they're looking at all options about, you know, how, how do we tame volatility? How do we stop uh, having to face political problems around um, affordability every winter and 
have this kind of awful situation where we're competing for LNG cargoes and consumers are paying through the nose to make a bunch of LNG traders really, really rich every year. Uh, and, you know, Russian gas, it, it, it's like it can't be replaced by LNG. Not entirely. So there have to be pipeline exports. There has to be some sort of kind of cordial agreement between Europe, European capitals and Russia over gas and energy generally. Um, it, that has to happen. So they, they need a kind of a new deal, if you like, for a, a transitional period. And, and that could mean new deals. And so the idea of them cutting off supplies is uh, hopefully exaggerated. Uh, I sincerely hope so anyway. Um, any more calls? Feel free to have another say or come back if you want to, to, to say anything before I sign off. Well, it seems not. So, um, yeah, thank you. Um, you. And um, hopefully see you this time next week for another edition of the Energy Flux podcast. Thanks for your time, everybody.